Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. I'm your host, and we will continue talking about identity this week. It's been a good week up here in uh, Western North Carolina. It's a beautiful day today. I thought it was going to rain all day. The remnants of that hurricane that's hit in Louisiana, and uh, we were supposed to have rain all day today, but right now it's absolutely beautiful. It was rainy and messy when I went out first thing this morning, but it's been nicer since then. So we're still in the midst of the COVID thing for six months now, almost, and um, all the other stuff that's going on in America, riots and all the other craziness that's going on. And so um, we're learning some things, I think. I think we're learning some things about who people are during COVID. I think we've exposed some stuff about people um, as we've sort of gotten away from our routines and either found new routines or kind of developed an attitude about things. I know I've tried, we've tried, Suzanne and I have to develop a new routine. We've been doing a lot of hiking. If you follow me on Facebook, you see all that. Um, we've had a lot of good hikes. I had done a lot of hiking up here over the last 10 years or so, at least a little longer than that, really, maybe a dozen years. And <clears throat> had kind of confined myself in many ways to the Mountain to Sea Trail, which is a trail that goes from the North Carolina border all the way to the coast. And so kind of confined myself to hiking within about, oh, I don't know, 100, some odd, 125 miles, kind of in that range. And I've done many of those walks many, many times. Um, done some other hikes, but mostly just on the Mountain to Sea Trail because it's close, for one thing. It's easy to get there. It's hard to get lost. Um, just runs up and down the Blue Ridge Parkway so it's been, it's convenient to do that. I could go somewhere, drop my car off, Suzanne could pick me up at another convenient place, and then when I was done, she'd take me back and we'd do it. So this time, though, we've decided that, that was, there's some things we could do together, but some of those hikes are not appropriate for her necessarily because they're steeper and harder. She has a bad back, and so we've got to be careful about that. But, so we've gone further and further afield, and it's been interesting to, to do that and kind of see different parts of the beautiful region that we live in. So kind of discover things about yourself whenever you start doing any form of exercise, right? You know, so you lift weights and you find certain things out about yourself. You uh, find out what your limits are. You find out in some cases, hey, you know what? My limits aren't what I thought they were. Same with hiking. Um, you can get out and you can, you can discover what you notice. And I've noticed that about people that when I hike with people, Sometimes, which is not often, but you can kind of discover things about them. Are they so fixated on the journey that they miss all the beautiful and interesting things that are along the way? And sometimes I'm that guy. Sometimes I don't see things. Suzanne will see them and say, hey, check it out. And I will have already gone past it and not even noticed it. So uh, things that we observe and not don't observe tell us a lot. Um, so it, I want to continue talking about identity. We had a we, so anyway we had a good walk yesterday. We went down not too far from where we are, about thirty minutes, a place I'd never been. Um, just found a really nice little area down there and enjoyed being somewhere different. It was a hot day, man, humid, all that kind of stuff. So it was uh, 
that was the hard part of that one. It's just dealing with the heat and humidity. Didn't carry enough water with us because I never do. Um, but it um, it was a good hike, and, and so it, it's just nice to spend the time. Sometimes traveling to the places and then the time we're out, we may not say much, but um, enjoy being together, enjoy that time. It's nice to be able to do that, especially when you're coming up on today, on Sunday. We've been married 35 years, and so it's nice after 35 years to be able to do those kinds of things together and kind of reflect a little bit on who we are as individuals, who we were as individuals, and who we are as a couple because all that matters. So just want to continue to talk a little bit more about <clears throat> that issue of identity as we move in. I mean, I guess if you didn't know before, if you know me that well, then you've discovered that I really love the Old Testament and I'll tend to camp there. And sometimes I, I camp there too much. And so I have to kind of rein myself back in and, and move on from, from that and bring in everything else. It's largely because I believe it's this continuing revelation of God beginning in Genesis and then run right through to now because God's continuing to reveal himself but but it's that doesn't mean there's a new revelation he revealed himself showed himself to us one time in Jesus and that never changes but we as Christians we're talking about things that are eternal things that are infinite and it's difficult to get it all I don't expect when I die that I will know him perfectly. That's Paul says very specifically that until we see him face to face, we see through a mirror darkly. So we want to pursue the knowledge of God all through our lives as Christians. We, want, we should want to know more and more and more. It's like being in a relationship with somebody when you're dating, right? I mean, you fall in love with this person. and They're the most fascinating person in the world. For a period, and then, well, feel like you know everything about them, and then suddenly, you know, some days you look up and you think, "Oh my gosh, really?" Because huh? sometimes when I get done with these things, Suzanne will sit here with me and listen to me. And sometimes we'll get done with this, and then she'll tell me what she was thinking about during what I was saying. But it's because something I said prompted her to think about something else in a new way. And so it's fascinating sometimes to think, huh, my wife sees stuff that I don't see. There's blind spots there that I have that she fills in, but it's because of what I said. So there's this prompting of the Holy Spirit back and forth, and it continues to sort of reveal the truth that the, the complementarity, that we bring something, each of us, to the table. And, and so I can know more because Suzanne shares that with me afterwards. We talk, and so it's nice to be, you know, kind of together on the journey. And God's continuing to show us both that we each have something to bring that brings a richness that we wouldn't have otherwise. So I'm fortunate and blessed to have her. But it's the other reason that we need one another as Christians. It has much to do with that. That's the reason small groups, Sunday school classes, whatever it is. That's the reason it's important for us not to be alone on the journey and that when we're that we're in the word together and that when we're talking to one another, speaking to one another, you know, wherever we happen to be at work, at the gym, wherever, that we are remembering that, that our identity and our um, connection 
is primarily through Jesus. And so we should be in the Word, and then we should be sharing that with one another. And I, I can't tell you how often that happens in my life, that people that I meet, people that I know that we're both Christians, we'll share with one another. I, I work for Amazon part-time doing customer service. I had a wonderful conversation this week for about 45 minutes with a guy that I don't have, I don't know, obviously. It just happened that he prompted a conversation and we had this 45 minutes and it's wonderful. It happens frequently in my work at Amazon, believe it or not. Um, but it's it, it's something that we need to be more aware of and we need to press into more in our lives. I have a great friend at the gym who will always, when we talk, share with me the insight. She is as much on fire for Jesus as anybody I know. Thankful for friends like that who bring out more and the best from me because they're sharing their insights and their excitement in the Word of God, something they've discovered about Jesus, seeing Him in a different way, a fuller way, giving glory to Him for what they've seen. So I'm just thankful for those things. And kind of what I wanted to talk about today because, you know, last week we talked about Peter and his confession of Jesus that you are the Son of the living God. The Messiah. And Jesus praises him and said, You're the rock on which I'll build my church. And, and, and that's exciting stuff, right? Because he gave him a new name. He's Peter, the rock. He's not just Simon, the son of Jonah. He's Peter. He's the rock. So this week, we're just moving one tick forward to the next passage in Matthew. We're just moving up one verse to the next. So we got eight verses in Matthew 16, 21 to 28. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, the rock, the one who got the acclaim, same way that got out of the boat, got to walk on water, and then well, got rebuked because he had little faith when he started to sink. This time we go from Peter, the one on whom, whose confession God will build his church. And Peter hears Jesus talking about he's going to be crucified, he's going to suffer. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the one who's coming, and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I know better than you. And he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Penthouse to the outhouse, man. Happens. We will confess great things. We will do great things for the Lord. And then suddenly we fall. Peter's fallen. Here, fall a long way. Why is particularly does Jesus say this? You know, get behind me, Satan. And I think it's because of this. I think it's because when Peter, when when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness before all this began, one of the temptations was that he would have all the kingdoms of the earth. He would bow down and worship him. And here, Peter says that your kingdom that you're coming into, it's not going to be with suffering. It's going to be with glory. Jesus could have had all the kingdoms of the earth that were offered to him by Satan there if he would 
bow down and worship him. He'd have it all right now. But no, there was a kingdom to come where he would indeed rule all the kingdoms of earth. But it was going to come through this suffering and death. Peter doesn't see that. He doesn't want that. (laughs) It's a better way to say it because Peter's like, nope, I know the scripture. There's nothing there like that. And Peter didn't want to go through the suffering either. We know that from what he did the night before Jesus was crucified when he denied him. So after he is rebuked, Jesus looks at the rest and says, if you come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's an easier image for us because it happened. But it would have been weird beyond belief for anybody to say that at the time, before the resurrection. It makes no sense without the resurrection. It's not, it wasn't every day, an ordinary form of dying. And what he says is, he's going to suffer from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's not going to suffer from the Romans. And Jews didn't have power to crucify him. So when Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, that's a really, really strange way of saying anything. But we know that that's what's going to happen. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow them at the time. They don't have the predicate for it, but they're going to remember the rest of their lives what it looked like for Jesus to take up the cross, stagger and stumble under the weight, carrying it to Calvary after he had been beaten and tortured, beaten with a lash, struck many times, spat upon, cursed, vilified, that crown of thorns pressed into his head. If you haven't seen the Passion of the Christ, I encourage you to watch it one time, just so you'll know what that looks like. But at the time, nobody knows that. Nobody has any idea. And if he's going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, then that's that's not something that's at their disposal. They didn't have the power to do that. Only the Romans did. And so that's the reason they handed him over to the Romans, to Pilate. But Jesus says that that about taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following me, saying, set aside everything you think you want. There's a different way to do that. You've got to deny yourself in order to pursue his kingdom, to follow after him. And he says, for whoever would save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, they did die. Right. But they didn't taste death. There's nothing permanent. Remember back to Genesis, you will not surely die. And they didn't die, but they experienced death. It's a different thing. So you, you hear that, you hear Jesus giving this hard charge to the, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And, and But then he says, if you do that, then you gain eternal life. But you got to lose your life for his sake in order to find 
real life. There's life and death all through that little thing Jesus does. But it, in the process of denying yourself is for his sake is when you find yourself, when you find that true self. Because you're laying beside all the false self, the one that's governed by desire and passion of the eyes. You're dreaming of your own kingdom, not God's kingdom. And so he's telling you that you've got to strip all that away in order to find yourself. You've got to get rid of that false self, the self that's not redeemed. And it does feel like death to give up your hopes and your dreams in order to do that. And then I just want to comment briefly on the things. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. I just want to make this little statement for Christians. Did you hear what he says? According to what he's done. Christians tend to think of the judgment of God being according to the things I haven't done. Well, I didn't do this and this and this and this. Jesus says we're going to be repaid according to what we've done. What you do matters. Who you are matters. It's part of who you are. In fact, if you confess Jesus with your lips, but there's no evidence of it in your life, if you're not a changed person, different person, if your priorities and your values and your goals and your aims are not his, then are you really a Christian? If his kingdom is not the most important thing in your life, if God's glory is not the most important thing in your life, and if you're compromising by who you are and what you do, and you're not enhancing it, and you're not making that more visible to people, and you've taken his name, that matters. That will be repaid according to what we've done. Not just the stuff you didn't do, but the sins you didn't commit, but things done and left undone are both sins that we confess in the Anglican tradition. Sins of omission and commission. So Jesus says your identity has got to be wrapped up entirely in him. And, and then he perseveres in showing that that's possible, that self-denial. But in self-denial, he comes into the kingdom. He comes into his kingdom. And all is handed to him. He calls us to live the same way. A life of self-denial whose identity is wrapped up in him and is revealed in him as we follow him. Then our identity becomes clearer to us. And sometimes you have to lose the false identity. And Paul in the Romans passage <clears throat> gives the contours a life like Jesus's, a life that Christians are called to. And I'm just going to read these to you because they're straightforward. You don't need me to explain anything. Let love be genuine. Abhor, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, times of difficulty. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what 
to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will be burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's telling you how to live like Jesus. He's the son of God. And yet he lay all that down to come and be here. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly, just like Jesus did. Repay no one evil for evil. When the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and everybody else came against him, Jesus didn't revile them in return. Live peaceably with all. Jesus lived peaceably with everybody, except they came after him and attacked him. And then he continued to live peaceably anyway. He didn't avenge himself, but he had the power to do so. He left that to the Father. In fact, when he had the opportunity to try and avenge himself when he was being reviled on the cross, he prayed for them. That sounds like heaping burning coals on the head of an enemy to not return evil for evil, actually to do good to that enemy. Those are coals of conviction. When the world sees Christians acting like Christians, you remember a few years ago, the Amish community where young person was murdered in the community, including the family, reached out to the man who did the murder and absolved him. I remember the power of that moment and the power that, that everybody around me was aware. Christians, non-Christians alike, was aware of what those people did and they marveled at it. There's a reason they marvel at it. It's not normal. It's not normal for Christians to do that, sadly. We've got to get better at that. We've got to understand and love the world in the same way Jesus loved the world. He could have separated himself from that sinful world, but he didn't. He came in a mission of love, of mercy, towards people who were oppressed by sin whether your sin or somebody else's sin, but we live in a world that needs that mercy to come into it. It doesn't seek retribution and vengeance. Instead, seeks the love and seeks to share God's mercy because we've received it. But we forget because we come to think of ourselves as righteous in some way and we forget that. So I want to wrap it up by looking at Moses and that not left myself a lot of time to do justice to this passage, but it's when Moses, 40 years after leaving Egypt, he had grown up in the house of Pharaoh. He saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. He stepped in and he killed the Egyptian. And then they hid the evidence. And so as far as he was concerned, it was done. And then the next time, he sees two Hebrews arguing with each other. And he tries to get in the middle of that domestic dispute. And I'm not suggesting it's a man and a wife. I'm saying they're brothers and sisters in the Hebrew community because we're talking about 12 families that have grown here. So he, he tries to get in the middle of this domestic dispute. And they say, who made you ruler or judge over us? Are you going to do to us what you did to the Egyptian? And he knows that that crime's not covered up. 
sort of like Cain did when God's voice said, your brother's blood cries out. And so Moses flees. He leaves Egypt. He knows that this isn't going to go well because he had chosen a side. He chose against Egypt on behalf of those Hebrews. And so he flees and he goes out and he's tending his father-in-law's flocks. He was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He, Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So there's this flame that's not doing what flames do. It's not consuming that thing that's on fire. So the fire and the bush are two different things. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, bush Moses, Moses. And he said, what we should always say when we're called by name by God, which is here I am. And that's again and again and again through scripture. We see that being the response. We see it being the response of Abraham in Genesis 22. We see it in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah's worshiping in the temple, and God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, I'll go. And so Moses says, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Sounds a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. There's this big fire, and but then that fire proclaims his own name. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Authenticates himself in that way. I'm not a random God. I'm this God, a particular God, the one who has been with you your whole life, the one who has been with these people all this time. And then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppressions with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God's seen, he has heard, and he knows. And that word know is like an intimate knowledge. It's the same know, in fact, that they were not supposed to get through the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a, it's a specific, intimate kind of experiential knowledge. It's not that God didn't want them to know good and evil. It's he didn't want them to know it by imbibing it, by participating in good and evil. And when they chose to disobey God, that itself was evil. They had an experiential knowledge of it. And when they did, they lost what had been before, the innocence of being naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed and they're hiding from God. 
here. That's the kind of knowing God says. But it's the kind of knowing also at the same time as that intimate knowledge that, that shows that it has an intention to act upon what it knows. And here God says, I'm going to send you to Egypt. And so this Moses is a man who doesn't quite know who he is, what he's sent to do. He spent 40 years in the wilderness tending the flock of his father-in-law because he doesn't know who he is. And if he claims this identity, it's going to cost him. If he claims this identity, it's going to cost him. And so he ran because of his confusion and because whatever he did was going to cost him something. And so what's his response to God saying, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He knows his miraculous story of his survival when all the other boys his age were murdered by the Egyptians. Who am I? He wants to know. He wants an explanation for the first 40 years of his life. He wants an explanation for the second 40 years of his life. Who am I? I thought that I was an Egyptian growing up in the house of Pharaoh, a man of great power and wealth. But I knew all along that I wasn't an Egyptian. And so when I had an opportunity, I, I made a decision to step out. And that got me here thought that I was destined for greatness and here I am here I am that's all I know here I am but who am I and then God didn't help him he says but I'll be with you and this shall be the sign it, it doesn't matter who you are you're the one I chose to do this. doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. Don't be afraid to undertake this mission, to do what I said, because I'll be with you. And this will be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. So I, wait. No, I need the sign now. Not before I bring the people out of Egypt. I can go do all the work before I get the sign. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God's had names, right? And that's how they knew. But God's revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's great. But what's his name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's not really a name. And then God said, say this to the people of Israel. I, I am has sent you to me to you. You're his ambassador. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. It, it's a, he's supposed to say to the people, this is the God that our forefathers followed, the God that we believed in. And, and then what's his name? It's I am who I am or that I am. If you think about it, though, it's the most powerful thing you could possibly say. And I'll finish with this. That, that what we do, when, if, it depends on where I am, right? If I meet you somewhere and somebody says, who are you? 
Well, it depends on kind of where I am. Because I could be, I'm just John, but I'm also John who does this podcast. I'm John who pastored a church in Asheville. I'm John who used to work at the church all since in Pauly's Island, who did pastoral care there. Um, I'm John who's my the father of either Pelham or Will or Pelham and Will. I'm John, depending on where I am. I'm, yes, I'm the John you went to school with at the center school in Chattanooga until the sixth grade. And then after that, I'm, I'm possibly the John that you know from Baylor School, or I'm the John from Swanee. I'm the John from the FDIC in Knoxville. I'm John whoever. I've got all these ways of communicating to you. I'm Brian's brother, David's brother. I've got these different ways of communicating with you who I am. If I just say John Green, maybe it doesn't mean anything to you, but then maybe it does. But so I found out last week I had a different identity. I'm talking to a young guy at the gym, and he said, um, we're just chatting. And he goes, oh, I just figured something out. I said, what's that? He said, you're Big John. And I'm flattered. I'm thinking, this is cool. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, people ask me all the time, do you know Big John? And I tell him, no, I don't know who you're talking about. He said, he said but I just figured it out. You're Big John, the pretty good-sized older guy who knows everybody and talks to people. Well, I was less flattered, to be honest with you. But, hey, that's how they were describing me, and that's how he knew who I was because he had seen me talking to other people before I talked to him. So that's how it works. But God has no antecedent. There's nothing before him. There's nothing after him. He is an essential being in the universe. In fact, he's the only essential being, being in the universe. I am that I am is the most comforting thing you'll ever hear in your life. Because he is existence. Has always existed. Will always exist. There's, there's no other way up to this point that he can say who he is other than he could say, I guess I created the world. But instead, no. It's personal the way he phrases it. I'm the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. It's in relationship. The same way all those identities I gave you for myself were. He doesn't say, I'm the God of all creation. He says, I'm the God of your fathers. It's a personal, relational God who has created the whole world. Later, he'll become the one who delivered my people, Israel, out of Egypt. It's in relationship that we find out who we are. It's in relationship that that identity we have for ourselves has changed. I know. After 35 years of marriage, I'm not the same person that I was. I'm really happy about that. I look back and sometimes I remember things that Suzanne fussed at me about when we were dating. And I can remember wanting to change because those things were not offensive. I don't even know the right word to say for this. They weren't big deals, let's say. But, but they were things that irritated her, got under her skin like you do when you're around somebody all the time, you know, little things can become irritants. Well, that's the way it was, but I wanted to change because I wanted her to like me more. I wanted her to think more highly of me, and so there are things about me that are different because of our relationship over 35 years. It's the way it's meant to be in relationship. We're meant to be formed by those relationships. And some people I've been in relationships, but I don't have to care what they when you enter into the relationship with the living God, 
who has chosen you like he chose Moses, like he chose Paul, then we change to something more acceptable, more pleasing to them because of that relationship. And that's the relationship you've been invited into. You've been invited into a relationship where you can deny yourself and take the cross and follow him because he loves you. And then you begin to change into the person he wants you to be because you want to please him and because you see that that's right. And that's the way it works with conviction of sin. But your identity will change deeply depending upon that relationship. And Moses finds out who his identity is through this next 40 years of relationship as he leads God's people in the wilderness. He becomes a different person than the guy who pastored the flocks of his father-in-law. He becomes a different guy from the one who grew up in Pharaoh's household. All those things influence who he is, but they ultimately don't define him. God takes the talents and the gifts and the things that he learned during that period of time and he applies them in a different scale and a different way. We're called just to follow him. And in following him and taking on his likeness, then we find out really who we are in relationship with him. If you want to know who you are, know this, I'm with you, he says. And Jesus promised the same thing to the disciples. Lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. We haven't reached the end of the age yet. He's still with us. There's still time. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For his words to us, transformation is the goal to finding out who we are. I hope you have a great week. It's been an interesting one, and I hope this podcast has some meaning for you. If there's anything I can do for you, any way I can pray for you, anything you'd like to say, feel free to interact on that Facebook page for Faith Seeking Understanding. Other than that, I'm John Green. I hope you have a blessed week.